This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmet. We are engaged this week in yet another of our Desiring the Kingdom uh, series, where we're coming alongside and supporting the uh, series of messages of the same name that are being preached right now at Rio Vista Church, um, but maybe taking a bit of a deeper dive to be able to have a little bit more time to talk about the remarkable things that we read uh, in this history book in First Kings. Um, and Sam, as we were kind of talking about this episode, uh, this is First Kings chapter 7 is the chapter that we're looking at, and and what I said to you was, this is where the book of Kings proves that it's a history book. <laughs> you have really got to be into the details if you're going to, you know, uh, there's a lot of how many windows were there and how many cups and bowls and that kind of stuff. It gets into that. We're going to focus more specifically on the beginning of this when it talks about Solomon building his temple and then a little bit more about the Ark of the Covenant, which comes later in the chapter. Yeah. Now, when Solomon... Sol- did I say temple? Solomon you, building his palace, not temple. Right. Solomon building his house uh, right. or his palace. You know, it's kind of interesting because uh, it starts right off by telling us that Solomon spent 13 years building his own house, and we know that he's built the temple in seven years, and the the uh, some of the commentaries I read sort of held that out as being kind of a virtue, saying, oh, well, obviously Solomon here is showing that the temple was more important than his own palace. And you said, <laughs> but you told me, you said, you know, it was four times larger than the temple. <laughs> yeah, so so you end chapter six, and the last sentence of chapter six is, he was seven years in building it, talking about the temple. Right. And then it begins chapter seven, Solomon was building his own house, 13 years. And so you're thinking to yourself, now, wait a minute, you spent seven years building a house for the Lord, and now you're spending 13 years uh, building a house for yourself. And then it gives the dimensions and converting cubits into feet. I did the math. And the whole structure of the temple and square footage is 2,700 square feet. So it's it's bigger than my house, but it, it wouldn't be an astronomically large house, so we wouldn't consider it a mansion. And that's the temple of God. But Solomon's palace is 11,250 square feet, so it's four times bigger than the temple. So it's it's one of those things where it's like we've mentioned in the other chapters where it just seems like God is blessing Solomon's socks off, which he is, and you're hearing this amazing symphony of how wonderful Solomon's reign is, but you hear that flute that's off key. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's it's belting out the wrong notes. And this is one of them. It's like, now, wait a minute. Should, shouldn't you have given more devotion to the temple than you did to your own house? And by the way, of that temple, of that 2,700 square feet, only 900 of it in the Holy of Holies is where God dwelled. And so when you think about that, Solomon is taking a residence that's 12 times bigger than that of the Lord Almighty. And then didn't he build a palace of equal size for the uh, daughter of Pharaoh that he'd married? Yeah. Think, yeah he, mean, built a, he built another one also for her. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It's, yeah, it's, sure. it's like 
This is government spending at its finest. It is. <laughs> but, you know, and, and you were talking about that that sort of mental picture of the flute that's sort of off pitch, a little off tune, and it's and you, you can kind of pick it up if you listen. But I almost feel like, okay, that flute's been doing that for a little while, and now that flute has led the whole horn section off. And now the horn <laughs> section is like, is like a step flat for everything, and they've dragged off the guy that's playing that big floor drum, and he's like, boom, boom. And it's coming out. <laughs> a different beat than it should so in other words the song is kind of starting to fall apart a little bit more here uh going into chapter seven i i made the comment that i felt i feel like solomon has kind of started to feel as though he deserves all this it's like he almost feels like you know i'm solomon i'm i'm david's son i'm the king I, you know, I built this house for you. I, I pointed out that, and we're, we're going to be getting into it next week, but in the, in the dedication of the temple, to, to pay attention for the times when Solomon refers to the temple, he refers to the temple as the house that I have built for your name. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, okay, we get that. You built the house, but you're going to refer to it that way every time? It's it's God's temple, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is that it's. I'm kind of getting the feeling that this is we're taking another big step toward. It's all about me. It's all about me uh, with Solomon, which is really what I think in the end is what brought him down. Is yeah. a, is feeling is that desire to satisfy his own appetites and this feeling that he deserved the trappings of power. He deserves mm-hmm. the blessings of wealth and so forth. Yeah, and you see that. So, so we've talked about this in previous episodes. Solomon, there, there's all these hints as you're reading through the first few chapters of First Kings that maybe this is the Messiah. He's showing all the hints that he's going to fulfill this messianic role, but he just unravels. And by the time you get to chapter 11, where everything really unravels quickly. Um, and you're left going, wait, where did this come from? It's <laughs> it's really been baked into the cake all along the way if you're picking up on these clues. Like Solomon is taking more and more personal privilege when at the beginning you remember he says, oh, I'm just I'm – just, I'm a little child. You know, I need your help. Um, I need wisdom because I can't do this on my own. All of a sudden, as he's getting older and older, you get the sense that he's going, yeah, I got this. Yeah, yeah I got this. And that's that's a dangerous thing to hear from your leader. And how far has Solomon come then from young Solomon, who said when when God came to him and said, "Okay, Solomon, whatever you want, just tell me what you want. I'll mm-hmm. give you your I'll give you your wish." And Solomon said, "I'm I am like I'm like a kid here. I don't know how to lead your people, and this is a this is more than I can do. I need you to give me your wisdom." And God was so pleased with that that then he said, and, and because you didn't ask me for wealth or long life or the lives of your enemies, I'm going to give you all those things also. Mm-hmm. So that was like – it was like extra added that God gave him. And now Solomon has started to feel like, yeah, yeah, I, I, this, I really kind of deserve this. You know, um, It's a far cry from where Solomon started. He started – with the, I mean that thing where when God came to him and said, "Hey, ask what I'll do for you. Just tell me what you want." For Solomon to answer that humbly, I think I don't know that I would have answered that humbly. I, I think that I would have said, "Well, the first thing I want, God, if you're going to give me one wish, is ten more wishes." You know, it's like <laughs> I would try to play the angles. It's like I'm rubbing the genie lamp or something. And 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 Solomon instead he laid it out there. He's like, "I need your wisdom." And now we have Solomon going and. This big palace and that other big palace over there. I need that. That's all I need. Just your wisdom 
and a big pa- and another big palace and 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 i built you a house too god it's over there it's the small one yeah on the <laughs> left you know that kind of thing <laughs> you know there's there's interesting between Solomon and David. You know these the, these two guys get contrasted quite a bit. You know David is a guy who's very passionate and his he's all you know a lot of people will say that he's more about the heart and Solomon is you know very much about the mind and it's interesting in the Psalms David will have this line where he says one thing have I asked of the Lord so Solomon's one thing is you know give me wisdom to lead the people. David's one thing in Psalm 27, verse 4, is one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so David had this driving passion. Even though he falls into folly and he falls into sin, like that's his driving thing. Like I need intimacy with the Lord. And when he realizes that he's away from it, you know, he's desperate to get back there. Um, Where Solomon is a lot more skillfully wise, it seems. And, you know, it's it's interesting which of those two would have been better. You know, if you could ask for one thing, is it just to be with the Lord, to dwell with him, to see his beauty? Um, or is it for wisdom and how to administrate justice in this world? You know, both of those are good things. Yeah. Um, but you see kind of a division in the hearts of David and Solomon based on that one thing that they want more than anything else. And I think that, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that the most important thing or the or the very best thing for us is to be with God, is to have mm-hmm. God with us and to be with God. And therefore, for that reason, I would say that if I had to pick between the two, which which is the better thing to ask for? I'd kind of go with David. I'm yep. kind of a David guy. Totally agree. I'm like, you know, let me be there and just see you, God, because if I'm close enough to God to see you, to gaze on your beauty, mm-hmm. the rest of it will take care of itself. You know, and it's interesting. At the beginning of Solomon's life, he asks for wisdom. And if we take it that he's also the author of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, how does he end his life? He, the thing that he's wanting most desperately at the end of his life sounds a lot more like David. I just want you. I, I want to love you. I want to be with you because everything here has left me empty and unsatisfied, and I need you. You're the solution. I did find myself as I was as I've been reading First Kings as we've been studying and going through to teach this series. I did find myself wanting to recommend that Solomon read the Book of Proverbs. It's <laughs> <laughs> really true. Yeah. I'd be really like true. Solomon. I got a book for you, man. It's called Proverbs, and I'm just thinking if you read this, this would probably help you out a lot. You know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, he had to learn these hard lessons so that he could pass them along. These these are not these are not lessons that didn't come without a cost. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he, he learned these the hard way. I think you know, or he learned them and forgot them too. That you know, yeah, I, I don't even know I, who know, who knows when certain things were written. But but I will tell you that when you read uh, Proverbs, well, we talked about this when you read when you read Proverbs and you read Ecclesiastes, it's hard to believe those are written by the same guy. Mm-hmm. And when you read the book of Proverbs and then you read something like First Kings and you see the things that Solomon did, it's hard to believe that he's the guy that wrote Proverbs mm-hmm. because Proverbs is just filled with all of this practical wisdom and such. You know, if you follow along the pattern and like live your life according to these principles that you see in Proverbs, you would not be doing things like building the Lord a shack while you build yourself a mansion, yeah. um, that kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet he did, you know. Yeah. Yet he did. And but he was he was a brilliant, brilliant man. You know, like the just the kind of a master of all sorts of things. One of the things that's in First Kings seven. 
um, in verse 12, it gives this tiny little detail where it says all the court had three courses of cut stone. So imagine cut stone stacked three high. And then it says, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of his house. And so you get this idea that Solomon, when he started constructing all these things, would go three stones, and these are pretty large stones high, lay a cedar layer, a beam across it, and then stack stones on them. And they go back and they said, well, he was doing that brilliantly to withstand earthquakes. And so if you go to Megiddo, which is one of the cities in, in 1 Kings chapter 9, it'll tell you that Solomon constructed you know, anew, you'll see that. You'll see three stones and a cedar beam and three stones on top of it, just like the, the scriptures describing here. That's Solomonic. And so just really brilliant. It's withstood 3,000 years of earthquakes and all other sorts of calamity. Um, and it's still standing to this day. It's pretty pretty awesome. He was a brilliant guy. You know, it's funny, though, when I read that, what occurred to me was, oh, Solomon likes mid-century modern. That's... <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the chair rail, I guess. It is. Of course, cedar thinking, beams. I'm thinking wainscoting chair rails. Yeah, it's midmo. <laughs> Solomon's into Solomon's into the midmo stuff. So, um, all right. So then, you know, so Solomon, when he finished building the temple, um, you know, at that point when the temple was finished, the ark was brought to the temple, mm-hmm. and we spent a lot of time this past week. You know, considering the ark, that's uh, it's actually talked about in. Well, it's mentioned that it's brought in in the first part of chapter eight, but it really doesn't go into a whole ton of of background or information or detail about the ark. I think a lot of people are familiar with the ark. If you talk mm-hmm. about, oh yeah, the the ark. First of all, folks, that's not Noah's ark. It's the ark of the covenant or the ark of the Lord. I, I, different ways to refer to it, mm-hmm. but. You know, a lot of us grew up watching the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you watch the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, you get this odd picture of the Ark as being almost like this, like, weapon that God created, (laughs) you know. Um, And there was, I mean, there was a, a time when... Um, if the ark was carried into battle, right, things would go well for Israel. So the ark was, there were, you know, it had... um, it was the Lord's presence. It was you know, the Lord's like presence, you, right. I mean, there's all sorts of times throughout the Scripture where the Lord is described with these terms, that he is enthroned between the cherubim. Right. And that's what it's talking about. So on the Ark of the Covenant, it was this golden box with a lid, and the lid is where you sprinkled the blood of atonement from the sacrifice, and it had these two angels on it. We talked about how last week that that is prophetically looking at the picture that Mary Magdalene will see when she looks in the empty tomb. Two angels with the bloodied linens in between her that are you know hold the blood of atonement on them. But in the Old Testament, which by the way, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the the special effects at the end scene where they they bring out the Ark of the Covenant and Harrison Ford is saying, "Don't look at it! Don't look at Don't it! Don't look at it!" And yeah. everybody else has a face that's melting and heads are exploding and everything else. Uh, which is that's that's you know. all from the book of numbers <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty much no no pretty it's much not. no i'm just kidding <clears throat> but yeah this this was something that was prophetically looking forward to the resurrection but it was always a reminder of god's holiness um and so the ark is first instructed to be created when moses leaves egypt so we're talking you know 480 years or something before solomon Moses leaves Egypt, and God, on when he's on Mount Sinai, is giving him instructions into how to create the tabernacle 
and all of its components, including the Ark of the Covenant. And so this this Ark was old by the time Solomon came around and was building a temple to house it. Um, and its beginning is really, really fascinating to me. Um, so the idea then behind the, the Ark originally, um, was it – if it was built when he was coming out of Egypt, it wasn't built until after God gave the Ten Commandments though, right? Correct. Okay. Because that was really what it was – I mean, to my recollection, the first thing that the ark was designed did was it contained the the law, the two tablets, mm-hmm. the stone tablets. So, so when Moses comes out of Egypt, God gives him instructions, and he says, "Hey, I want you to go get some acacia wood, and I want you to make this wooden box, and I want you to overlay it with you know gold plating, and I want you to put a lid on it." And inside the ark of the covenant went three things, and these are really important, and we'll come back to these later um, as we're talking. But the first thing was the Ten Commandments. Right. The second thing was a jar of manna, because if you remember when Moses comes out into the wilderness, they're in a wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. And so God brought forth water from a rock, and he rained down this manna, which is like honey wafers, really thin kind of bready stuff. But it rotted every day. And so he's like, gather up what they called an omer jar of manna, put that in the Ark of the Covenant. And then the other thing was Aaron's rod, his staff, that had supernaturally budded and into almond blossoms. And so there were three things that were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And that's kind of like, you think, okay, these three things apparently were so special to the Lord that, you know, he dwells in this room called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, where no man except the high priest can come in once a year. And when he chooses what goes in there, it's nothing but the Ark of the Covenant and these three things that were inside. And it's interesting when I was over in the Cairo Museum, and this is – take a left turn, so hang with me here. <laughs> a number of years ago, almost a decade ago now – gosh, time flies. But almost a decade ago, we were over in Egypt, and I was walking through the Cairo Museum, and they were talking about when a pharaoh would die or somebody of nobility would die, they go through the mummification process. And so sure. you know, they take the, the little hook, and they pull out the brain, and they throw it away because they thought it was worthless. Then they start pulling out <laughs> – organs and you know they'd keep your stomach and your intestines and your liver and your heart and they would put them in canopic I think those are the four but they would put them in these canopic shrines which are like you know you know how russian dolls work where they're like eggs that you just keep pulling apart yeah and there's a smaller one inside yeah well these canopic shrines look they look like bowling ball pens and you could take off the top of them and then you would put the organ in these little canopic jars then you would seal them, and it, the idea was you don't want moisture getting to them because you don't want them to rot because they're going to need them when they're resurrected. You know, it's like, oh, there's my heart. We'll put that back in, and uh, here's my – you know. <laughs> it was kind of absurd, but you would take these pins, and then you would put them in something called a canopic chest. And this canopic chest was made out of wood overlaid with gold, and then it had a lid on it. And on the lid, they, they formed – and if you go to like the 18th dynasty in particular at, at, around the time of Moses, actually during the time of Moses, this is the prevalent form, is a golden box. And on the lid of this box, you had the god Anubis. And Anubis it takes the appearance of a jackal. looks like a black Doberman pincher kneeling down on the lid of this thing if you've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Anubis was the god of the afterlife. So he was the god who would walk you through the process toward resurrection. You follow? Sure. So now when you think of the Ark of the Covenant, last week we talked about how the Ark of the Covenant was prophetically looking toward the empty tomb, the resurrection. And so God gives this, 
well, they're coming out of Egypt when they hear, hey, we're going to build a wooden box that's overlaid, gold-plated, that has a lid with these images on top of it. They're, they're immediately thinking, oh, that's what the pharaohs have for their own resurrection. Inside the canopic chest, what did the Egyptians put? They put all your flesh, your yeah. organs, your heart, your intestines, your liver, whatever else was, would go in there. And you had to preserve your flesh to have any hope of resurrection, Right? Yeah. And so God is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. They're leaving behind all those customs and, and the craziness of uh, the idea that you earn your own salvation. Because the Egyptians had an even more moralistic view of the afterlife than the Israelites. So, I mean, they said if you'd ever told a lie, if you'd ever raised your voice in anger, things like that, you, you couldn't have an eternal life. You had to recite all these things before the gods mm-hmm. for the hope of an afterlife. And so everything about Egyptian mythology is you. You preserve your flesh. You better be good enough. You better mm-hmm. recite all these can- incantations to the gods and you know get the thumbs up from all the different gods. So when Israel comes out of Egypt, they're leaving a very moralistic framework behind in Egypt of the Egyptian gods. And mm-hmm. when God says, no, 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 let me give you a different box, same thing, wooden box, Overlaid with gold, the image of a resurrection, which they wouldn't have known you know, at the time, on top of it. But then he fills this box with three things. And each and every one of those three things is pointing toward the resurrection in a really pretty beautiful way. You know, I think it's interesting that, for example, you said that they, they uh, put manna in a jar in there. And then uh, didn't that – then that manna remained, right? I mean, manna – the manna that came mm-hmm. down would disappear or would rot overnight. But the manna that had been placed into the Ark of the Covenant inside that, that jar, um, it, it lasted. It was like mm-hmm. God supernaturally preserved it. So it's, it's almost as though, you know, he's letting them – he's also kind of giving them a symbol that, you know what, in the resurrection – we're not going to have things that fall apart and rot anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing with the with that staff. I mean, that was, uh, and I think that was being done. That actually came from the time that they were trying to to choose who was going to be the the top dog among the priests or whatever. And they had all these guys put their staffs down, and it was Aaron's staff that budded. Mm-hmm. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, and and so to just to just to elaborate on that when when this manna which dies every day you know it rots right. every yes. day but in the presence of God it has eternal life like it doesn't rot this jar full of manna when it's in the presence of God's glory does not decay right and that's that's a symbol of hope for us in the resurrection like there's no more death then you get what you're talking about with Aaron's rod the way that that story comes about is you have a whole bunch of people who are going after Aaron and they're saying, you know, he's the high priest. This is Moses' brother. Right. He's the high priest and we don't like him. We think he's doing a terrible job. We don't think he's worthy of the office. We want him gone. And so God basically comes and through Moses, he's like, all right, well, let's have a contest. They're impeaching him is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah pretty much. It's okay. an impeachment trial. It's an impeachment trial. Okay. <laughs> and, and God says, okay, I want each of the tribes, I want you to all come forth with a staff. And leave them all outside of the tabernacle, and the one whom I choose to be worthy, to be my high priest, in the morning I will have taken this dead stick, you know, this staff, and in the morning it will supernaturally bud with flowers and almonds and Mm. almond blossoms. So this dead thing is going to come to life, which is utterly absurd. It's impossible scientifically, unless God, right? And so in the morning they come back and they find Aaron – who is this unworthy, 
you know, high priest who really has disqualified himself in human terms, right? Like he's sure he's done some things in the story where you're like, why is he the high priest? <laughs> and what's awesome about that is God takes him, and it's not just a message. Hey, I can bring dead things to life. I can turn this dead stick to produce fruit. It's it's pointing you that hey, I can use Aaron. Mm-hmm. You know, just because he's broken, just because he's dead in his sins and trespasses, let's put it that way, doesn't mean I can't bring a resurrection through him mm. and bring him to life. And so I, that's precious to me. That, you know, keeping manna alive in my glory to where it has everlasting life, that's precious to me. I want that in the Ark of the Covenant. Imagine God saying this. Like he gets excited about these themes of resurrection. I could I could decorate my little house, my – my little place in the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle with anything in the world, I want that in there. Yeah. I want that stick coming to life that showed the people that I can work even through a broken man, a fallen high priest. Um, and then the last one is the Ten Commandments themselves, um, which that whole story is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And Will preached about that this weekend. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was really good. Last weekend. Yep. There were some things that happened with respect to the Ark that always, to me, seemed um, kind of harsh or like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the story where the Ark was being um, carried from one location to another, and the rules were that only the uh, Levite priests could carry, could put these uh, rods. They put The Ark had, I guess, rings on it, and they would put these rods through it so that it could be lifted up and carried without you having to actually touch the Ark. Um, and the Levite priests would carry it. They'd have these guys carrying it. And um, one of them, you know the story I'm talking about? One of them stumbles. Uzzah, yeah. And then somebody reaches Uzzah. forward, Uzza was his mm-hmm. name, to mm-hmm. try to prevent the ark from hitting the ground. Like he's going to save the ark. And, and, and he gets like struck dead for it. Mm-hmm. Um, what in the world was up with that? I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, he was just trying to keep the ark from hitting the ground. Yeah, that's one of the stories, and it's an uncomfortable story. Um, but what it's what what happened is what you said. It's in Second Samuel uh, chapter six, verse six. It says, "When they came to the threshing floor of Nekon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. And you're like." whoa, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty intense, and it is intense, and it's supposed to make us uncomfortable. But what is God saying? You know, here's here's the ark, and I want, like, this is where we need to recognize how desperately we need a Savior. You know, this ark is God's house, his perfection, his holiness, and when it begins to fall because of this oxen, and let's let's presume that it's heading down for a mud puddle. Yeah. And Uzzah reaches out and grabs hold of it to spare it from the mud puddle. God is angry. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that mud puddle is far less defiled than Uzzah. Hmm. You know, it would have been okay for the ark to fall into the dirt. But you thinking that you're more worthy than the very mud puddle it's going to fall into, it's, it's a hmm. reminder. No, 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 no. You have no business with me. You are so defiled you are so broken that you can't have any part of me. And we read that and go, man, but he had the best of motives. He, 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 was, he was doing this probably internally thinking he was being, irre- he was being totally reverent, and the Bible right. is saying, no, 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 it's irreverent. He has no business touching the ark. 
And that's something that we're totally uncomfortable with. In our modern culture, we look at God and we want to make Jesus our homeboy. And, you know, there's really not that much distance between us and the Lord. Um, you know, we're not that bad and he's not that transcendent. And we miss it. Like, and this is one of those stories where it's like, no, 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 no. In your sin, you have no business touching anything where God's glory dwells. Yeah. But in Christ, the beautiful thing is all of that defilement has been taken away. Yeah. So had Uzzah been walking under Christ's atonement, he could have he could have grabbed the ark and there would have been no problem because he would have been made sinless, sinlessly mm-hmm. perfect by the sacrifice of Christ. And now he can come boldly before the throne. He can grab hold of the ark mm-hmm. um, in a sense, even though we don't have the ark anymore. Right. But, but we we forget this – how holy – this God is that we yeah. worship. I mean, that is something that I, I do think we lose track of that. And we we were talking about that as, as a staff this morning in our time of personal worship when we all got together to just spend a little time reflecting on the uh, personal worship for this week. Um, you know, we were talking about the fact that we have kind of lost that sense of awe and reverence um, where God is concerned. And we were talking about it in the, in the light of, you know, this is the temple of God. And when they bring the ark into the temple, that God himself then inhabited the temple. So there was a, a, a cloud uh, formed inside the temple that was so dense, so dark, that the priests couldn't see to do their jobs. <laughs> so, you know, his presence literally filled the temple. And, uh, and so we were talking about the fact that we have that presence of God you know, in us now, God has chosen to live through us, to live in us, to put his spirit in us, that we, in that, in, in that sense, are the temple today, and that we treat that so casually. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we just take it for granted. It's like we'll just go wandering off and do, you know, who knows what with who knows where and who knows why, and we're kind of taking the temple of God with us. You know, we're dragging it into these bad situations. and. Mm-hmm. We have lost that perspective, you know. We <laughs> we've lost that perspective. That that idea that if it was not for the atonement of Christ, that for us to be even in God's presence, as as Isaiah said, where he says, "Woe is me, I am undone," literally <laughs> meaning unmade, like every molecule of my body flying apart at <laughs> infinite speed. You know, like God's holiness is so intense that it is tearing me apart at a molecular level just to see it and then of course the the angel brought him that coal from the altar where it it was the blood had i I loved how you talked about that when we Mm -hmm. when we were talking about that it's a long time ago on the podcast but the idea there that he took a coal from the altar where sacrifice would have been made and the blood would have been down on that coal and he touched him so it was it was was as much the blood as it was the coal as the heat Mm -hmm. um that that cauterized him and that and that made it okay for isaiah to be there we literally would be like that. I mean, we would just blink out of existence. If we if you dropped us in front of God as we are without Jesus as a covering, we would blink out of existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I've always found fascinating is every time, no matter how great the biblical hero is, every time they first encounter the angel of the Lord, which is, you know, pre-incarnate Christ, sure. they all have the same reaction. Which is falling on the face, I'm dead, get away from me, oh my goodness. And almost always the angel of the Lord says – the first words are almost always the same, be not afraid. Yeah. Um, Which means it's very scary. Yes. (laughs) Like this this was terrifying. Um, 
and there's something to that. Like if you, you know, most people in this world spend their lives trying to get out from underneath any sort of accountability to God. We spend rebelling. We we want to make this world our own. We want nothing to do with God. Um, and then we imagine that somehow when we die, and heaven is a pleasant concept. You know, I like streets with gold, and I like peace, and I like sure, bliss and joy sure. and all that stuff. But then it's like, what makes you think that heaven would be heaven to you? Mm. You know, if if you're allergic to God here, if you do everything within your power to get out of any sort of moral framework or expectations that he has for us here, and you do not want his atonement, and you rebel against him and spit in his face here— like when you get to heaven to stand before him in your righteousness rather than the perfected righteousness of Christ that's offered to you, I'm going not leaning on myself. I am I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ through nothing I've done. I'm a total dirtbag that he has cleansed and covered with his righteousness. And therefore, when I stand before God, I am not appealing on my own merit. I would be terrified to go and die and stand before the Lord of glory and that kind of extreme holiness that we just talked about and say, I'm good enough. Yeah. Like if us is not even worthy to touch the ark that is the dwelling place of God's glory, how how horrible to stand in front of him and mm-hmm. all your defilement and the ways that you have butchered his world and his sons and daughters and, and done things selfishly and corrupted his creation and to stand before it and feel entitled to his blessing. Like he is a merciful, wonderful, gracious God who has spared no expense to purchase you and you've spat in his face saying, I'm worthy of you. I don't need it. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's chilling. That's that's like old school Puritan stuff, but that makes it no less True. Hey, so maybe that uh, maybe that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't so inaccurate <laughs> after all. Yeah. If you if you were standing in God's presence without the covering of the blood of Christ, your face would melt. Um, <laughs> but you wouldn't. This is what I'm saying. Like if you're if you don't love Jesus here, if you don't love the idea of dwelling with God and being with Him in a surrendered relationship here, what makes you think that's going to be enjoyable on the other side of death? Yeah. yeah. Like. Heaven will feel like hell to you, right? You know, and I think that what everybody tells me, and you hear this so much, what everybody tells me they want so much is to be is to have somebody that really truly knows them, and yet loves them. I mean, we hear this all the time. I want to be known, and I want to be loved. It's this basic human need, and yet. What's one thing that we know for sure, Sam, is that nobody really knows us. Our wives know us pretty well. My wife, you know, we've been married 35 years. You've been married a long time also. Your wife knows you very well. My mm-hmm. wife knows me very well. But my wife doesn't know every single thought and impulse that's ever rattled around inside my stupid head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, but there is one who does. Mm-hmm. You know, And so the thing that you want most in this world is to be truly known and truly loved is a thing that can only happen through God. Because God knows you absolutely, perfectly, completely. There's nothing hidden from him. And he is still, he loves you and will embrace you. Mm -hmm. And so that thing that you want, the thing you want most of anything else, you can only get in the presence of God. And, uh, you know, that's the people that say, what's the best thing going to be about heaven? The best thing about heaven is going to be that God is there. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that the the one who knows you best and loves you most is going to be there, and then everything else that's just added. That's just extra stuff. 
you know anything else that we get from beyond that that's really cool yeah. when you uh, when you talk about that i i just want to go back to that story with Uzzah because it's one of the one of the more harsh stories in the bible that we look at and go i don't like that you know but i want to stop for a moment because here you see the lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act his defiled hand touched the dwelling place of god and the lord's anger struck out against him right but this same god and I want you to hear this, hear the way to this. That same God who is that holy is also so loving that he came down into this world and took on all of our defilement and he grabbed hold of the ark for us. And he felt the Lord's anger and all of its wrath rage against him. The mm. God himself in the form of Jesus Christ took wrath. Why? He became unworthy to stand in the Lord's presence, defiled in sin. And so he was crushed. Why? So that you can grab hold and see his smile mm. and to see him singing and rejoicing with delight over you. And so we look at Uzzah and we go, oh, my goodness, that's so un unjust. No, what's unjust is that very God who is that holy and not defiled came into this world with his perfect righteousness, took on our defilement. He was crushed so that we can grab hold. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's the Lord we're talking about here. Hmm. His mercy and love is like wide open to you, and you don't realize, you know, his love is so magnified by the drastic nature of his holiness. Mm -hmm. Like what he deserves is so much greater than anything we could possibly give him. And so he takes the penalty of our shortcomings mm -hmm. so that we're made perfect. It's It's awesome. You know, one of the things about that Uzzah, the story with Uzzah and the Ark, too, is that, um, you know, I, I talked about how the priests would put these long poles into these rings that were uh, part of the Ark, and they would use that to carry it from one place to another. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because the priests weren't allowed to touch the Ark either. <laughs> yeah, even the high priest on the Day of Atonement is was, slinging. Right. You know, he's slinging blood on it. Right. I mean, and and if he were to make a mistake and sling and touch that thing, that's why they had a rope tied around that guy, because if he got, you know, <laughs> struck dead in the Holy of Holies, they had to be able to drag him back out because they couldn't go in there to get him. So, you know, I mean, I, I do I, I do have to mitigate that by saying that, you know, nobody was allowed to touch the ark, to actually put their hand on the ark. Um, something else that's interested me, and this, again, this is just like, I always have a million questions. It's like, oh, yeah, read this. Mark will have questions. Yeah, but let him read it anyways. He's going to have questions. <laughs> I always have questions. Um, so I was reading this, and it, it was making a big point about the ark and saying that the ark had nothing in it except for these two stone tablets. Mm -hmm. Now, we know from elsewhere that the ark had that jar that had the manna in it, and it had Aaron's rod. They were, had they been removed from the ark by that point, do you think? Or were they being stored separately from the ark? How do we... Is, it, that, it is, that a, is that a conflict there? Is that like a, one of those scriptural transcription errors or something? Yeah, or? I don't know, it, but it never specifies. So it makes it a point to say that it's only the tablets. So when Solomon moves the ark of the covenant into the holy of holies of the temple, it says that it only has the tablets. And so the, the jar of manna and Aaron's rod, we don't know where they went and the time between Moses and Solomon. But it seems like they're not there. I don't know if they're being – it doesn't clear. It doesn't clarify that point anywhere. Um, 
because the ark had been various the ark had been various places right mm-hmm. in, in the intervening time yeah the ark i mean there's there's things that the ark the ark goes on a tour and wins a battle all by itself at one point <laughs> you know it's you know <laughs> okay it's, so that raiders of the lost ark thing was right <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's really a fascinating story so you have eli who's right before david and Eli's sons are wicked, Hophni and Phinehas. I'll, I'll try to tell the story as briefly as I can, but it's just fascinating to hear what's going on here. So Hophni and Phinehas, they decide, hey, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to go out into battle against the Philistines, and this will be our good luck charm. And the Lord just says, oh, yeah, you're not going to treat me like this. And he lets them lose. And Hophni and Phinehas die. The Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines, who then take it away. And on the third day after – second day after capture, they put it in a temple of Dagon, and in the morning, Dagon has fallen over in a posture of worship in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And then the next morning – so they raise it back up, and then on the morning of the third day, the, te- the statue of Dagon has fallen over again, except this time the head has cracked off and the hands have cracked off of the statue. And so the Philistines and people are starting to get sick, and so they say, we got to – Get this, we got to get this uh, Ark of the Covenant back out of it. And they take it back and deliver it back to the Israelites saying, please get this thing out of here. <laughs> and, and the story, when you think about what's going on, it's, it's so – it's pointing you to Jesus because what's happening in that story? Here you have the wicked priests who for self-serving measures deliver the Ark of the Covenant over into the hands of Gentiles where – the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God's glory, goes down into a temple of the God of death of the Philistines, and on the morning of the third day emerges victorious, having defeated that God and crushing its head off, and then it's delivered back to the Israelites, right? Back with with back to its proper place. And mm-hmm. that's the story of the gospel. You know, that's mm. Jesus who is who is betrayed by his own priest, who's sold into the hands of the Gentiles, the Romans, who then crucify him, put him to death, and on the third day he emerges victorious. So the ark, you know, before King David is kind of playing out these stories where even though everybody in Israel is <laughs> is not doing what they should be doing, the ark single-handedly puts the Philistines at bay. Um, and it's a nod to Jesus and what he's going to accomplish in his death and resurrection. It's just fascinating. Hmm. So what happens to the ark eventually? I mean, it gets – we don't we don't have it today for example the ark's not still around yeah there's all <laughs> there's so many theories now about we're getting into some real ark. speculation okay yeah, this all is right. like well you're, this is turning on the history channel and watching the ancient aliens shows and <laughs> you know this is kind of weird theories but there's some that postulate that it's buried beneath a church in ethiopia most people think that when and during the days of the prophet ezekiel which is right before the destruction of jerusalem and the temple we're told that God's glory departs from the temple and leaves and goes over the Mount of Olives and departs. And it's it's basically God is saying, Ichabod, I am my glory. If you're going to be this wicked and this unjust as a culture to where you're exploiting the poor and you're abusing people and you're, you know, your religion is no good at all, glory departs. And so the Ark of the Covenant wouldn't have had the glory of God. And so a lot of people think that when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they took the Ark of the Covenant and the other instruments and melted it down for the gold. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's what I suspect happened, yeah. but I don't know. 
the Babylonians weren't known to preserve religious relics, <laughs> particularly. They were kind of like, a, uh, you know, they would they would pretty much do what they wanted with whatever they took is what I'm getting at. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, and we shouldn't mourn the loss of that, by the way. We don't need an Ark of the Covenant anymore. We don't need a mercy seat where the blood of atonement of a bull is sprinkled. We have the true Lamb of God. Mm-hmm who has paid once and for all the sin of all time. And so we don't mourn it. It'd be nice to have it. It'd be cool to see it, but we don't need it. It is one of those things that, um, you know, the the whole idea that uh, in the Old Testament that God would come meet his people at some particular location. I was pondering that this week uh, as we were doing personal worship this week, looking back, you know, we'd start kind of start with that thing at the start of chapter eight, talking about the ark and then going into the dedication of the temple, which we'll get to next week. But I started thinking about the fact that, um, that God at first, that God was with man in the garden of Eden, you know, and that Mm -hmm. that was this idyllic pastoral situation where it said God would walk in the garden with Adam. I mean, can you just imagine the, uh, that is such a peaceful and blissful picture, you know, mm-hmm. of like God just was there. To, you could just walk with God. You know, it's like he was just in the garden with you. And everything since then has been a poor substitute for that. Once we got ejected from the garden because of sin, then you had the tabernacle and God's glory filled the tabernacle. And then you have the temple and God's glory fills the temple. Um, and, you know, and then until until today, until the new covenant where God is with us all the time, but even so, to have God bodily there, to just be walking with him, it's just this remarkable idea. All of that ornate symbolism, all of that ritual, all of that, God sets all of that aside once Jesus has come. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and and then after that, it's not about the ritual, it's not about the gold and the location, it's about the relationship. Yeah, I, you know? I, I think that's spot on. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the ways that it's, it seems like every 500 years, God, going back to the days of Moses, every 500 years, there's a new iteration of the tabernacle or the temple. Mm-hmm. And so you go back to roughly 1500 B.C. and Moses gets the tabernacle and then 500 years later you get Solomon's temple and 500 years later you get the second temple that will ultimately be renovated into Herod's temple. But 500 years after that you get the real temple. Right. And it's like throughout this whole process, there's this trajectory toward intimacy that God is getting closer and closer with his people and mm-hmm. more and more open to all the nations. And then through his death and resurrection, when we're made righteous for the first time ever after his atonement, humanity is made righteous in the sight of God to where now the Holy Spirit can come and dwell within us. And think about how wild this is. We talked about Uzzah. You know, who who couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant because the glory of God dwelled there. Think of how absolutely wild it is that the New Testament says that the very reason Uzzah couldn't touch that thing now dwells in us. Mm-hmm. Um, that God, that that power, you know, the same the same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. That's mm-hmm. just a wildly uh, huge statement that a lot of times we don't we don't act like we believe it. No. You know, we don't make, you know, the scriptures come along and say, hey, if you want the power of God, the spirit of God to live in and move and, and work through you, then die to self. Allow him to live in you. Crucify your flesh so that he can live in you and imagine what kind of power could flow through that. But the reality is, is none of us crucify our flesh to the degree that we should. Yeah. And so a lot of times, 
I feel like we don't experience a spirit-empowered life because we're too busy grabbing control of everything mm-hmm. and not surrendering our lives to him. Mm-hmm. You know, it is true that— Soapbox moment. Well, but it is, it is true, though, that you know you talk about this amazing power and this awesome privilege and all these other things, and you're like, well, so then what's the problem? Well, the problem would be us. You know, the problem would be the fact that we don't really believe it, that even when we believe it, we don't believe it enough to really take hold of it and do what's needed, um, you know, to get out of the way. Uh, you know, the the most important thing that we can do in terms of letting the world see the, the true power of God is to get out of God's way. You know, mm-hmm. we, we put our own agendas in. We put our own desires in. Um, we A whole lot of whatabouts and yeah buts. And the bottom line is that we become the impediment to people being able to actually see God at work. Um, and, you yeah. know, it's, it's a lot like you said. When you're looking at personal worship, you notice how many times Solomon says, look at this temple I have built. You yeah. Know? Yeah. yeah. We do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, look at this. Look at this temple that I have built. You know, it's like, mm, no. Like, you need to get out of the way and let the Lord start doing some business in your life. But we don't want to do that. We want to say, no, 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 I've built this. This is mine. I get the glory. Yeah. And it's just a fallen human instinct. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all salted there through Chapter 8. Like I said, we'll get, we will get to that next week. But I just see over and over again that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. It's like, and then the next mm-hmm. verse, pray to the Lord for the city that you've chosen and the house that I have built for your name. <laughs> and it just keeps going on. And then verse 48, it's a pray toward this land that you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Over and over and over and yeah. over again, Solomon refers to the temple as the house that he has built for your name. And you know what? That's true. Solomon did build the house for the name of the Lord, but it's the Lord's house. It's like you built it for the Lord, so let's stop getting your. You know, let's stop making <laughs> sure that everybody knows that it's Solomon's work. Also, um, I think that that's you know one of the problems that we have is that we really want to have some of the credit, mm-hmm. um, and it, that's awfully hard to let go of. You know, when, big time. You know, we just it's like oh no 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 yeah no no we we needed God to help us with that. No, oh no, that's not how it worked. You know, it's not how it worked. That's that's, that's why the Puritans say. Uh, I need to repent of my repentance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even my tears need washing. Yeah. Because we can't do hardly anything without feeling prideful about it. Yeah. You know, we can repent and go, man, I did a really good job repenting. God must be really proud of me. <laughs> you know, it's like we're absurd. We're absurd. Pride yeah. runs through so much of of our being. We have to war against it. Well, what's that verse from Isaiah? It says that all of our righteousnesses, the the very best things that we do are as unclean or filthy rags. It's like the very best that you can offer is suitable to be tossed onto a fire and burned as refuse. (laughs) But But it's like I used to tell my students, when it's offered up in faith and it's washed in the blood of Christ, it becomes even, it might be a, a train wreck of a watercolor painting but in front of the Lord even though it's all out of the lines and the wrong color and everything else when it's bathed in the blood of Christ and offered up in faith and adoration the Lord treasures it sure 
because it's then it's then no longer our righteousness. It's not our right. attempt to be righteous. And I mean that's the you know and that's that's the bottom line. And that and frankly that's kind of the the story of the ark also. You know, getting back to the ark and finishing off what we ta- started talking about with the 10 commandments, the tablets being inside of it. Sure. You know, I think one of the reasons total speculation, but I think one of the reasons why it does get pared down to where it's just the tablets. If you remember the original intent of this, of coming out of Egypt, you know, inside their canopic shrine, their canopic box was, hey, here's how you achieve resurrection. It's with the help of Anubis and your own flesh. But in the Ark of the Covenant, the key to life is found in the Word of God, mm. period. Yeah. The Word of God is how you find resurrection. Everything that you need for resurrection is inside the Ark of the Covenant, and it can be boiled down to one thing, the Word of God. And there's a pattern that happens in the Old Testament that I find fascinating. The, the Word of God experiences three 40-day periods in, in the days of Moses. And so let's, let's go through those real quick, and you'll see where I'm going in a minute. Moses goes up on a mountain the first time at Mount Sinai. As soon as they've come out of Egypt, they've gone through the Red Sea, he goes to Mount Sinai. He goes up on top of the mountain, and God descends and pens with his own finger the Ten Commandments. The first Mm -hmm. time the Word of God has been penned in this world is on Mount Sinai. Right. And so then Moses comes down after 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking, and he sees the people engaged in sin, worshiping the golden calf, and he takes the word, and he shatters it to smithereens, and he's angry, and he spends 40 days dealing with their failure to resist temptation as they're in this wilderness, right? And then God says, you know, I'm going to show mercy, I'm going to, you know, make good on my covenant, come back up on the mountain, and we're going to spend another 40 days together, and he gives them a restored Ten Commandments. That's what ultimately makes it inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then God disappears, and Moses comes down, and that kind of gives birth to the the nation of Israel at that moment. Mm-hmm. So you have these three 40-day periods involving the Word. When you get to the, the New Testament, it's, it's not an accident. It picks up on those things. And so, for instance, when Jesus is born – here you have the Word of God made flesh. You know, John chapter 1 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so out of the gates, as soon as he's born, he has to wait to the eighth day for his circumcision. And then they have to wait for a, a whole 33 days, which includes the eight, for purification. And so it's on the 40th day that he is presented at the temple, mm-hmm. right? Okay. It's interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so here you have the Word of God made flesh that is presented to the people on the 40th day. Then he's going to have 40 days. The next period of 40 days in Jesus' life is when he's out in the wilderness. And what is he doing? He's resisting. He is successfully resisting the temptation for 40 days Mm -hmm. in the wilderness where the Israelites failed in the wilderness. And Moses has to repent and intercede for them for 40 days. And then he's going to be destroyed just like those tablets were destroyed. When Jesus confronts the sin of the people, Mm -hmm. he, the word of God, is destroyed. But then he's made new. Just like the the Ten Commandments were restored or resurrected, Jesus will be restored and resurrected. And Moses, in that final 40-day period, will go back up onto the mountain with these renewed tablets. And then God ascends and departs into the heavens. And Jesus, after, after the resurrection, he spends 40 days with his apostles, mm-hmm. post, post being the word made new again, right? Mm-hmm. And then he will ascend into the heavens. And it's, it's 
one, the Ten Commandments by themselves are wonderful. Mm-hmm. They are holy, and they're the, the they're the pattern and design for God's life. But because we are broken and se- have sinful natures, and we can't possibly keep the Ten Commandments, even though they're wonderful, they condemn us. Mm-hmm. The law condemns us mm-hmm. because we can't possibly keep it. When the Word becomes flesh. Jesus, who keeps the law perfectly, he is the the incarnation of the Word of God. When he comes into the world, he atones and makes good. He keeps the law perfectly, but he gives that righteousness to us, and then he pays the penalty for all of our sin. And so it's interesting where one, where the ark at one view, because it holds the Word of God, would kill you if you touched it. Mm -hmm. When the Word becomes flesh... The gift of righteousness, the gift of the perfection to the law is now given to us, and we're invited to come boldly before the throne of grace hmm. because he took the curse of the – he became a curse under the law hmm. um, for us, which is just it's, – it's fascinating how the scriptures through all these different chapters and different authors weave together the story to show us that had Christ never come, the law of God would still be a snare to us. Not because it's bad, but because we are. Mm. But now in Christ, we have the perfect righteousness of God himself, and the law no longer condemns us. Mm. It's wonderful. There's no way that we can break fellowship with God. If you're in Christ now, you have his righteousness. Mm. Well, that's that's a good word, and I think it might be a good word for us to end on. Unless you have something else that we wanted to cover about the ark, I think we've uh, done a pretty good job. Okay, I, I I think we're good. Okay, I'll I'll think of something in two minutes from now. Okay, that's fine. Well, you can bring it up and then. Everyone for... will be thankful that I didn't go <laughs> <laughs> any longer. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word then uh, for this week on our study in First Kings, and uh, really kind of enjoyed the conversation about the Ark of the Covenant. I think it's something that it's a fascinating topic. It's one of those things that uh, if you're if you're kind of new to going to church, maybe you, you, you're not really familiar with some of these stories. Um, and I think that it's really kind of helpful to understand the symbolism and the meaning of it. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. If you'd like to correspond with us to ask a question or make a comment or suggest something you'd like to hear us talk about on the podcast, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, Vista church.com and that's also the website where you can find all the back episodes of out of water at riovistachurch.com slash out of water or you can find us on apple podcasts on google play or on spotify or in our rio vista church smartphone app just look for rio vista community church in the app store of your choice sam and i'll be back next week with more from desiring the kingdom and we look forward to seeing you then We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.